And you're perhaps asking yourself, well, why am I getting access to a Patreon show when I don't belong to Patreon? And the answer to that sphinx-like riddle is that as the holidays approach, in the spirit of giving, I want you guys to get a peek behind the curtain and see what it's like for people who spend money to demonstrate their appreciation. To Discography's The Top 10, the Patreon-only podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by ascending to the top of the Patreon ladder and rating every last thing that ever happened in the history of time itself. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and in this new series, one of my best buds of all time, Joe Kennedy, and I... What? have assembled a top 10 list. You know the kind. You take a piece of paper, you take a pen, and you write 10 things on that piece of paper. I typed it in. Oh, you did? Uh, Actually, I didn't even. You typed it. Back to the drawing board. (laughs) (laughs) The moment this thing ends, go to our Facebook group, the Sky Graffiti Soldiers of Sound, and post your own version of this week's top 10. This week, very much looking forward to it. It's the top 10 plane into the mountainside band career decisions. Welcome back to the show, Joe. This is going to be a fun one. I'm, I'm just l- glancing at the list. And I'm already kind of chuckling. Just looking. This is a really good one. This is going to so, be fun. I didn't know exactly where we'd skew to, but a lot of these I'm pretty obsessed with in the way that, or at least half of these I think about with scary frequency. Yeah. Yeah, like some of these um, are conversations we've had before, but now we'll, now we'll let them bring everybody else in on them. Okay, so I'm just, as an example, just going to dive right in. So okay. recently, my dad and I were watching the incredible Creedence Clearwater Revival documentary about that Royal Albert Hall show that was found, where they were like, eh, let's kind of build a quasi-documentary around it so it's not any old concert film, and then get a guy that played the dude who loved Creedence to talk about it. But they don't get into what we're about to get into here. So my number one is Creedence Clearwater Revival's final record, Mardi Gras. Now, let me explain We're talking about artists that made inexplicable career sabotaging decisions is the kind of theme. Yeah. So I'll back up. You know, the idea here is that all 10 of these, if these artists had a handler within shouting distance, they would have been screamed at. (laughs) Like, no, do not do this. These are all super bad decisions from a business perspective. Aesthetically, sometimes it was a great idea and sometimes a terrible idea, but always bad in a business sense. Mm -hmm. That's the mountainside. The plane is your wallet. The mountainside is your business life. All right, let's start with... Credence's Mardi Gras. So Credence Clearwater Revival are an astoundingly interesting band because if you ever look at their discography, it's completely insane. First of all, they were not Credence for a very long time. They started as a band in 1959 called the Blue Velvets. Then came the Gollywogs, who were awesome, like a mid-60s garage band, and then Credence. So they were a band for nine years before they even were called Credence. That's important to know because initially they were Tom Fogarty's band. They were not John's. Right. It, it was Tom and the boys, and they were like more doo-wop influenced. Then John took the helm, 
and impersonated somebody from the bayou, which is not a bad thing. You know, if you can walk, I think you should be able to play a guy in a wheelchair in a movie. But sure. that's basically what he was doing. And worthy of note and worthiest of note is that all that time, you would think too much time went by, they couldn't pull it out of their ass. But from 69 to 70, because they put out their first record, and then a little bit of time went by. But when you look at all their success and all their hits, it happened in about 18 months. Right. A that's, massive 18 months. They got that's huge. Crazy. It hasn't really been rivaled since. All those hits, all those crazy songs, the endless flood of songs by these guys, it just never ends. And it was basically a year and a half. So a lot of the hits are concentrated kind of on the first few records. By the record before this one was Pendulum, right? Which kind of has like one hit. So maybe they're right. falling off a little bit. Right, but right. Still, still enormous, though. What's going on in the band is that there's a lot of tension now because now everybody kind of wants a piece because all the everything's in the publishing right so, so doing, this is in 71 right they're so making, they're making it tom has left the band at this point so tom fogarty's gone they're down to a trio so in my head this is absolutely fucking genius. John had to have known what he was doing when he extended this invitation. He just had to have. What he said was, look, guys, and by guys, what I'm talking about here is Stu Cook and Doug Clifford. Right. The other two members who were remaining. Cook is bass and Clifford is drums. Right. So he said, guys, we'll just split the songwriting up. If you want a piece of this and you think you're as good as me, let's split the album into thirds and just do it that way. The funny part of it is that they're like, no, no, man, that's cool. You just, you just write the songs like normal. And he insisted that they do it that way. I mean, you can't make this shit up. It's crazy. So Fogarty has three songs on it. And one of them is one of his best songs, I think, which is Someday Never Comes. At this point, he had so many great deep cuts. Yeah. But the other he, guys are clogging it with shit. It reminds me of the Walker Brothers, that album where Scott Walker's aesthetic left turn begins with the electrician. The Night yeah. Flights record. The other right. guys, their contributions are so pedestrian that especially in relation to what we're hearing from Scott, it's mind-blowing. Not only did he insist that they contribute two-thirds of the songs, he said he would quit the band if they did not do the record that way. And then when they recorded those songs, he refused to sing on them, even like backup vocals. He was like, I'm just the guitar player. That's all I do is oh, play guitar. Wow. He's really steering the plane into the yeah. side of the mountain. Yeah. He's gunning for the mountainside. They did not really want to do it that way because Tom wanted to do it that way. Tom quits. And then even after Tom leaves, he's like, all right, you guys think you're so good at doing this shit? All right, I insist now that you write. So Tom, Tom left as a direct result of that decision? Yeah. Tom wanted more of a songwriting partnership. With him, then, by the way, I can understand it. Right, and ends up leaving the band. So after he leaves, that's when they concoct this decision where Fogarty's like, all right, you guys come up with two-thirds of the record. It seems to me clearly trying to break up the band. That's nuts. Nuts in a way like releasing Black Star two days before you die is nuts, where it's like this perfectly orchestrated maelstrom of misplaced energy that is like, performance art right it's incredible this album just like self-portrait the whole is so much more mysteriously greater than the sum of its parts it is definitely not a great record but because of the circumstances from which it was born one of the all-time greatest records the Stu cook songs are kind of a rough go for me <laughs> the doug clever ones are kind of not as bad the Stu cook ones are pretty rough <laughs> yeah, very affected yeah. kind of put on sort of voice interesting it's crazy it's also it's only 28 minutes kind of barely yeah yeah as an album. a lot of records back 
the Nashville skyline is less than that even, I think. Yeah. But anyway, that's number one. If you can see what kind of list we got here, it's pure gold. All right, number two. For the vehemently anti-drug James Brown and Prince to finally let their curiosity get the best of them. This goes without any explanation, right? I mean, they would find their fucking band members if there was drugs around, right? Isn't that the thing? Well, James's thing would be he would find you if you fucked up on stage, if you missed one of his cues. Okay, or so something. clams, clams. Yeah, but then he fired Bootsy because Bootsy took too much acid and thought his bass was a snake, and he threw <laughs> the bass on the stage and ran away. <laughs> Rephrase that. So he finally realized his bass head was a snake. Right. He finally realized that the neck yeah, of his yeah. bass was actually a snake with the aid of, aid of some. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Some psychedelic AIDS. He realized that was what was happening. He fired Bootsy for that. I don't know how much he really uh, was James very anti-drug. James liked to do some drugs himself. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, ev eventually, it. yes. Maybe he was doing drugs originally. I thought he was not a drug guy. And then he very, very much became one. But, you know, in Prince's case, Prince famously died of what painkiller overdose, right? Yep. Because of the way he performed on stage, he had endless hip and knee problems from doing all those crazy jumps that really took a toll on you. Eddie Van Halen had the same thing, broken hip from doing all this. You know who else? And who else? Chevy Chase. Oh, from doing all his falls. From right? all the yeah, fucking yeah. Gerald Ford stuff. Sure. Yeah, you really hurt yourself doing that shit. He got, so, he got, he apparently got into the pills pretty bad. Right. So Prince was a Jehovah's Witness and a complete teetotaler. And I think he looked at the pills he was taking as just needed them for pain. That's sort of the delusional thing. It's like Elvis. You know, Elvis was like, oh, this is my medicine. Elvis thought he was like anti-drug. Right. So I think Prince is kind of like in that category. Yeah. I, yeah, I tell myself <laughs> the same thing as I'm shooting Dilaudid into the head of my penis. <laughs> right. This is just my medicine. Yeah, yeah. I need this to feel it's like better. taking a vitamin. <laughs> yeah, it's not like taking a vitamin. It is. It's how you take a vitamin. <laughs> um, anyway, suffice it to say, it was not a good idea for James Brown or Prince to take drugs. But number three, this one I'm excited about because this is an interesting form of suicide because some people were into the idea, some people were not embracing the idea, and that's the monkey's head. Let's explain. I'm sure if you're on this Patreon, you know what the monkey's head is. But it's named that because they, in advertising, wanted to be able to say from the guys who gave you head. Yeah, and there's an excellent, uh, if you haven't heard our monkeys episode that we did on this with uh, Andrew Sandoval, we go into this in kind of detail about the making of head. Well, you know, it's very avant-garde and holds up great to this day. It's kind of a, still kind of a very neat little piece of cinema. Definitely the audience that the monkeys had at the time, this seemed to be a conscious effort to um, relieve themselves of that audience. <laughs> of, of all audiences. Right. And the amazing thing is, it was a deliberate act of career suicide because Bob Rafelson, the director and creator of Head, and Bob Schneider, who, you know, was the producer, and together they had formed a company called BBS that wound up bankrolling Easy Rider, and Bob directed Five Easy Pieces, which was the really the birthplace of Jack Nicholson, the actor we know and love today. A very heady time for those guys and they wanted to move on to greener pastures meanwhile they were committing suicide to something that for all intents and purposes by that point was less him and more them because this is the only thing on the list i think where the the, the career suicide thing they did actually is kind of great as art 
It's, oh, it's yeah. still a really, really great movie. Most of these things were just sort of failures or just bad decisions. At least and, they got. And yeah, this is yeah. their peak. I mean, yeah. uh, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited. That's my favorite monkeys record as a whole. But the high points on Head are their high points as a band. Yeah, yeah, and they're also kind of uh, they're good actors. You know, you got to remember they were cast as actors originally, so yeah, they yeah. kind of carry the movie well because they can act. Yeah. Um, It's a a fun movie. It's an incredible situation. Something like this is just born out of tension because all the guys, they all had mixed feelings on whether they they didn't necessarily want to go out this way. Some of them didn't want to go out, period. So it's worth a look. See, the whole thing was the brainchild of all the guys, plus Jack Nicholson, who laid around and smoked a ton of weed. And over the course of one weekend, the screenplay for Head came together from that. So number four, the New York Dolls embrace communism and a full-on red makeover, courtesy of Malcolm McLaren. This is pretty irrefutable. I've never met anybody in my life who was like, you know, the Dolls were just building up to their red period. Right. Yeah. No, nobody ever says like, yeah, that's my favorite part of when they, when yeah. they yeah, when they, yeah. When they stopped writing music. <laughs> and <laughs> so I actually have heard there's a really, really good bootleg called Red Patent Leather, and it's a live album by these guys that was recorded in March 75, just a month before the group broke up. So it was right at the end and you get a taste of what they're like. And it's really interesting. You know, they're still a great fucking band. But what happened was by this point, the dolls were playing smaller clubs. Things were going downhill quick. The plane was already pointed in the direction of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. There's artistic differences, tons of substance abuse. In late February, early March, Malcolm McLaren became informally their manager. But, you know, it's funny. He was their manager for a very short time. They basically ended right after this, that there was no manager. Yeah, he basically created their demise is what he did. There's also no substance to it other than they're just wearing the clothes. It's not like they made some sort of like communist manifesto album or something. It's just like it was just a dress up kind of thing. It's dumb. The thing about it is it just was so flat. You look at Richard Hell, for example, the shirt saying please kill me and the look in his eyes it was shocking the communism thing i don't know what they were grabbing for but it doesn't work as it's just any... such a tepid way to try to be so shocking tepid. <laughs> so tepid it's just not controversial enough yeah. it's a flat statement from a band that was going to be done in a month kind of a misfire so. from malcolm mclaren who's usually good at that sort of thing yeah it was like the one time he couldn't provoke well enough yeah all right number five van halen hired gary sharon to be their new lead singer First of all, well, you got to check out episode nine. It's our Van Halen episode, and it's one of our best ones. So at this point, the plane had already crashed into a slightly smaller mountain. <laughs> it's yeah. Sammy Hagar. Mm-hmm. Sammy leaves. They're at the crossroads. It's looking like maybe David Lee Roth will come back. It doesn't pan out for ridiculously hilarious reasons. And instead, they're like, well, they're like, it's the late 90s. You know, who could bring us back to relevance? Singer of Extreme. He's due for a comeback. You guys remember Extreme, right? Did he need um, a comeback at that point? So more than words came out in 90. So it's eight years post. Yeah. Gary Sharon was already kind of like his career was already pretty finished at this point. I mean, it's, you know, this is 98. Hair metal is like long, long time. Also, it's worthy of noting that they didn't try to replicate the Sammy style. These songs were longer. They're more experimental. It was a contrast. They wanted to really break free from who they were. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> his voice is kind of similar to Sammy Hagar's. Unfortunately, it's just yeah. it's the same kind of like high effort. It's also they, unfortunately similar to the lead singer of Extreme's voice. <laughs> 
<laughs> very uncomfortably close to that. <laughs> yeah, they just didn't have the tunes. I think, especially when Roth didn't come back, they were like they're trying to do something kind of more ambitious and trying to make these big epic songs. It's just it's a it's, Dude, a, it's wanna, a rough lesson. You want to hear an incredible music trivia question? Do you know who produced Van Halen Three? Wasn't it the guy who did like Bon Jovi and stuff? Not at all. It's Danny Korchmar. Oh, Danny Korchmar. Okay, they must have been friends or something. What a weird fit. If you've heard this, which I have, you have too, obviously, because yeah, we did the fucking episode, but it. It's uh, not a good record. It's not inspired no. bad either. It's just bad. Yeah. Anyway, bad idea, guys. But then again, you could very well just as easily say that hiring Sammy Hagar to be their new lead singer is That's when the a worse idea. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. My monthly income at the moment totals a whopping 760 bucks. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more episodes and moving forward you'll get up to three shows a week there's the main show every friday wednesday's brand new series the top 10 and monday's wildcard episode which could be anything from interview bonus material our buried treasure show rock Cousteau, our slag off show queasy listening and exclusive limited series like the private press with paul major and if you've got no financial worries to speak of keep in mind that some of the higher patrons tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show choose the bands we cover or even some of the guests we get for the price of a cup of coffee a week you can ensure my family's fed build a music library that'll be the envy of your block and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving patreon.com slash discography once again that's patreon.com slash discography and now back to our expertly crafted program all right <laughs> sticks is mr roboto <laughs> 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 All well, right, the, talk the to me. Great source material for this, if you haven't seen it, and there's probably a way to find it on the internet, is the behind yes. the music about sticks, which is one of the most hilarious things it, like it's ever. So funny. So there's kind of two competing factions in the band yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's the sort of like shit kicker butt rock guys, as led by Tommy Shaw and the guitar player dude with the eye patch, whose name I forget. And then literally the guy who wrote all the heads. <laughs> Right. So all the hits were written by Dennis DeYoung, who's like total musical theater kind of guy. Yeah. Um, it's like I a mean, musical I, theater guy fronting a bar band. Yeah, exactly. And so, so you get these weird. wild stylistic shifts. Now, I want to be clear. I think that one of the least inspired bands that ever was huge, you know, except for, you know, a couple songs that remind me of being younger and so have uh -huh. that unavoidable effect on me. There's nothing I like. There's not one song. Let's talk about the idea behind this. So these guys, regardless of what us two schmucks think about them, are hugely successful. Right. And so... So Dennis DeYoung, who's the quote-unquote talent behind this thing, decides that he sees it as the perfect time to make a statement about what it still remains to be seen because it's an indecipherable piece of work that he produced. Well, they also, they, their stage show, they had this whole like film they would play. So Mr. Roboto, let's let's back up because it was a huge fucking hit. It went to like number three. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, maybe I think it was their second biggest hit. I think Babe was a number one hit. It's just a huge, huge hit. So, yeah, so, that, so just to clarify, the bad idea 
is not the record. Although that's also a bad idea. (laughs) Well, it's a bad idea. Every one of their records was a bad idea. But specifically, like we said at the intro, from a business sense, this made no sense. So on the tour, so the song's already kind of a hit. For the tour, they put together this whole like stage play where they show a little film before they go out. And then there's like dialogue they'll have to recite. And then like somebody's wearing the robot head. And there's this whole convoluted story about like Mr. Roboto comes from the future or some shit, like some stupid sci-fi thing on top of it. So it's opening night of their tour and they're about to play in like Oklahoma or something. somewhere in the midwest in front of this like super shit kicker audience and tommy shaw is like i gotta go out there and like say all this like cheesy mr roboto dialogue like we we need to t- get you to the laboratory mr roboto <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so these people are gonna fucking like rush the stage and murder us <laughs> and it was long it was like a half hour or yeah yeah and to be clear kilroy was here was conceived as an album and an accompanying stage show so right. it was always intended as that. And at the very least, somebody knocked some sense into him because the theater venues, you know, that was only at the beginning part of the tour. They uh, did it but, once. Oh, that's it? Show. Yeah, they did it once. I didn't realize it was just once. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did it once and that was it. I'm surprised because the album debuted at number 10 in the first week. The and song, with- Mr. Roboto, sucks so bad. It's like a camp classic. It's unreal. How it's bonkers. There's one good song on this, Don't Let It End. Yeah, that was the other single. That's another That's, a, de- that's a decent song. Yeah. But just generally, who cares about sticks? <laughs> the feel- great thing about the documentary, if you see the behind the music thing, is how it all unravels. They hate Dennis DeYoung so much and it's so... They Eventually, hate him, point, like, yeah, but he's hateable because he's, he's talking hateable. about light sensitivity. Well, that's the great thing. So I think it must be the early 2000s or like the late 90s. They get offered some kind of big tour if they'll do a reunion with the, all the original members, all the classic lineup members or whatever. So yeah. they're going to get offered all these huge guarantees. It's going to be a great deal for everybody. So they, they get into rehearsals and they're, 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 the dates are booked. And um, Dennis DeYoung is like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. I, I'm sensitive to lights, so I can't be on stage yeah. where there's lights. <laughs> like, like, what the yeah. fuck are you talking about? <laughs> he just like didn't want to do it. Just like made it the lamest excuse to get out of it. Yeah. It's amazing how much they hate each other. It's brilliant. Talk about a minor league version of the Pink Floyd saga. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no artistic integrity here. <laughs> Fuck these guys, seriously. I've learned to become more accepting, becoming older with regard to music, not in terms of other people. I think people are freaks. Sticks but- only has value as like Spinal Tap esque comedy. Yes, and correct. They do bring they do bring that to the table. I have to admit. Correct. Number seven. Anyone who participated in the Sergeant Pepper movie. <laughs> this is another one that makes me laugh. You have to we, say we, like initially. You got to say like there'd be no reason to say no to something like this is the problem yeah we talked about this a little bit in the bgs episode about this project yes go back and listen to the bgs stuff the bgs aren't really even in it that much they kind of just end up being like the house bands they they kind of sing occasionally now and then but it's all these weird guests artists produced by george martin uh, which he he maybe has the most to answer for well no stigwood yeah right he's the he's the guy that actually made it happen he's the guy to blame he's the guy to hang for this but george martin should have said no no well dude joe come on the 1970s was all about you should have said no <laughs> the stack ridge i mean what differentiates that from anything else george martin kind of takes it all kind of a little too seriously like the songs are often like very super faithful but bad renditions yeah. of the songs where they're kind of like played by good musicians by the good session cats at the time but just like lacking any of the soul of it i really can't speak on the movie itself because i've never actually seen it but i've listened to the soundtrack and wow yeah 
The soundtrack is really bad, and it's a double, and so it really tests your patience. And then even though this isn't really that much of a Bee Gees project, this definitely did help drive the career plane into the mountain, because this was the first sign of decline. Yeah. Right? This is the first sign of, like, things are going in not the right I, direction. I honestly thought you said dick line. <laughs> Freudian slip. This is the real yeah. dick. This is the dick line right here. Dick line, yeah. All right, number yeah. eight. Metallica becoming outspokenly punitive around Napster and downloading culture in general basically they went from metal demigods to your annoying fucking uncle that you hope to god does not come over for thanksgiving every single year yeah the companion piece to this item would be that some kind of monster documentary oh yeah the therapy thing they're all sitting around in their little therapy circle like talking about their hurt fifis about who gets <laughs> yeah. to play the guitar solo and all that stuff like yep. they have such like rich people problems okay metallica is like absurdly wealthy but by this point these are my early days in the professional music industry was right kind of when Napster and file sharing was really taking off. So I'd find myself in a lot of discussions with record industry people and they were in such denial. They just wanted to find every kind of way to shut it down. And it's just like, I would find myself taking the side of you cannot shut it down. No, it's whack-a-mole. It's, it's just impossible. You have to figure out how to monetize that because that is the future. You're not going to sell these little discs for 20 bucks forever. But Lars in particular, just he just put himself without thinking it through, I think, in the role of the clown that everybody wanted to dunk. Nobody liked hearing from this guy with his rich guy problems. Right. The other thing that adds a little bit of gasoline to that fire is that Lars actually kind of sucks. <laughs> He's actually not really a very good Do you think so, really? I'm He's surprised. Weak. Did you think that back in the day? Because you were He holds fan, it together right? on the records, especially the mm -hmm. earlier Metallica records. And then later, like the Black Album, for instance, is apparently heavily edited. So it was mm -hmm. before Pro Tools, but it's apparently like a lot of drum edits had to happen. If you mm -hmm. see them live, he's just not very good. I mean, he can okay. get it together enough in the studio. He has just not good feel. He doesn't have good stamina. He starts to fall apart halfway through some of the songs. I think most musicians will tell you he's not very yeah, good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, that kind of added an extra layer of like, 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 shut up, dude. You're not even good at playing drums. Yeah, you're yeah. A billionaire. You should be thankful you met James fucking Hetfield and shut the fuck up. He's you scared know? that if people steal his stuff, everybody will know that he can't cut it. <laughs> yeah, just fuck those guys. I continue to steal music. I stream it sometimes, but I prefer to get the files. I'm pretty much um, a full streamer and then I buy records. I'm like definitely not buying CDs. But it's important to say this, okay? I'm a filmmaker. I have two movies that were purchased from me by distributors, so they're publicly available, especially Zombie Honeymoon, and I actively encourage people to steal them. I'm not right. a hypocrite about this. Go get my movie. Go right. fucking take it. I don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Number nine, Billy Squire's Rock Me Tonight music video, a.k.a. the first time I ever got a boner <laughs> <laughs> billy squire up to this point had a pretty successful part part of his career right had some big hits yeah. kind of an mtv personality he was kind of there early in mtv when there weren't a lot of videos to play on mtv so his big kind of hits before this got a lot of spins mm -hmm. i think he was kind of a headlining maybe not arenas but theater sized places doing pretty well 1984 so the album with rock me tonight comes out and it's the lead single and song's okay <laughs> It's pretty much a Billy Squire kind of song. So let me just jump in here and say that they got this guy named Kenny Ortega, who later directed the high school musical films, actually. That tracks. Uh, yeah. And so Squire wakes up in bed in these pastel, already everything's wrong, pastel colored sheets, all satiny. And then... <laughs> 
prancing around the room like little Lord Fauntleroy and then putting on a pink tank top and leaves the room with a pink guitar. And basically what happened is overnight, a giant chunk of his fan base said sayonara and started listening to Judas Priest instead. Judas uh, Priest is way less gay. Is way less gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The actual choreography video deserves yeah. to be Were you a fan? And did you go I was not a huge this fan. at the time? Right. No, even before this. I mean, he was just a guy that was on MTV. I don't think I had any of his records or anything. But, you know, you'd hear him on, like, K102 by us. You know, he was kind of on the kind of cooler, like, rock stations. The, the, the colors and, like, all well, the so, pink and pastel stuff. Okay, and so dancing, though. We got to talk about something here, okay? There were clips at the time of Squire saying that, you know, what was me? I used, you know, the director talked me into doing it. And you can say that. That, that's fine but at what point do you wake up and realize that this is going on is it the pink tank top is it the pink guitar at what point do you say no? He had to have practiced the dance moves, right? There had to have been a choreographer working with him to do it. Because it's like... He was complicit in this. If you look up the word poncing in the dictionary, it's just like there's a picture of this video. It's like a still image of him. Was this the end of his career? This was the end of his career as a top like headlining kind of artist. It's like county fair territory after this. This was definitely like a turning point. He'll be the first one to tell you this is a Yeah, yeah, thing. yeah, sure. This is a true plane crashing incident. It's a great one. All these are so delicious. <laughs> Delectable for someone like me. <laughs> anyway, number 10, Kanye West talks about his feelings regarding Jewish people. Wearing a pantyhose on his face. Yeah, I'm Jewish and I'm less horrified and I'm just more glad that he's out of the public eye because he was not a healthy person to be seeing consistently. I took him seriously as an artist for a number of years. And then immediately when Life of Pablo came out, I just had this feeling, not just that he had released a bad album, but that he was over. And I was right, that was it. What was the record before, whatever that was, was the very last one that one needed to take seriously. And now that he's opened his mouth and talked, period, I don't think I'll ever revisit the records, even my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which is definitely a masterpiece. I've never been in a position of wanting to throw purchased records under a steamroller a la <laughs> Beatles 66, but it's this guy. It's a bad, very toxic combination of someone who is not well mentally and is surrounded by endless amounts of yes men and won't take advice to the people who are giving him good advice. Basically, it, it's an unfortunate combination of him having a lot of power and having mental problems. So yeah. you know, nobody really able to stop him from doing things that are extremely destructive. Obviously, the guy's a complete narcissist he's, he's you know a textbook like toxic narcissists i think part of that is we live in very narcissistic times we really reward narcissists right we that's you don't really have to pay much of a tax for being a narcissist anymore and i um, want you to know i'm cognizant of not wanting to talk about him for a long time because i feel he does not deserve nor has he earned the space on the show to command that yeah he deserves being talked about number 10 on a list in a patreon <laughs> as, yeah but as an afterthought so i don't want yeah, to expand right on it endlessly because ultimately just like people who murder other people they don't want to go on and on about the guy because that's what they wanted you think about how much he got away with before the final last plane crash moment he said a lot 
of other things that were that were that were very damaging and yeah. like very hateful and he kind of got away with all that it's, it's just uh-huh. it's when he finally went on tv with actual card carrying nazis that's what it took to really get him fully like canceled i don't think anyone has been more deservedly canceled <laughs> like, yeah. righteously yeah. earned it so yeah fuck that guy fuck that guy all right well that's 10 this has been an absolutely predictably incredibly fun episode to do yes now go to the facebook group and post your top 10 this would be such an interesting one to just keep the ball in the air so please do that and thank you so much for your support guys food wouldn't taste the same if i didn't have any joe thanks for being on the show my brother my pleasure 